Hello, this is Josh Levine. The Queen was made possible with support from Slate Plus members. To thank those listeners for their support, we've made two special bonus episodes that are available exclusively to our members. You're about to hear an excerpt from the second bonus episode. It's a roundtable discussion that explores what it's like to write a reporting-intensive book like The Queen. To listen to the full episode, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com plus. It's just $35 for the first year, and every membership includes ad-free versions of all Slate podcasts and other great benefits. Thanks for listening, and thanks to our members whose support helps make our journalism possible. Hello and welcome to this very special bonus episode of The Queen. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the editor of Slate's Books Coverage and the author of How to Be a Family, which will be published in September. I am joined here in Slate's DC studio by my colleague, Josh Levine. Hi, Josh. Hey, Dan. So as listeners of the podcast know, this series is a companion to Josh's book, The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. Josh spent years reporting the story, which first appeared in Slate in 2013. Now, for many nonfiction writers and journalists, a book like The Queen, you know, a full-length work of investigative reporting, is sort of the gold standard of projects, the thing you want to have the chance to write at least once in your career. But how does writing such a thing actually happen? How do you get the story? How do you find information that the government or that corporations don't want you to have? And how do you get stories from people who might not want to talk to you? And how do you then turn all that reporting into a book that is hopefully engaging, accurate, fair, funny, interesting? So I'm going to discuss this all with Josh today, and we are joined by three remarkable authors who have also worked in this mode. First, I'll welcome David Grant, a New Yorker staff writer and the author, recently, of Killers of the Flower Moon. Hi, David. Hi, it's great to be here. We're also joined by Eliza Griswold, winner of the 2019 Pulitzer Prize for her book, Amity and Prosperity, One Family and the Fracturing of America. Hi, Eliza. Hi. And finally, we're joined by James Foreman Jr., the J. Skelly Wright Professor of Law at Yale and winner of the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for his book, Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America. Hi, James. Hi. I'm so glad to have all of you here. Thank you for joining us. Um, I'd love to just bounce questions around all of us, but if you have something you want to add, even if you, you know, I haven't called your name, please feel free to jump in. I'm not like the proctor. Uh, but let's start with a really basic question, but one that I think a lot of writers struggle with as they're trying to make this transition. How do you know when something is a book and it's not just, you know, a piece? Um, why don't we start with Josh Levine? My uh, piece became a book, so I feel uh, very qualified to answer this question. It took me about a year from concept to execution on the piece that ran in Slate in 2013, and it ran at about 17,000 words, which reputedly is the longest piece that Slate had ever run at that point. And there was a sense, I think, internally, Dan, that it was more comprehensive than it <laughs> perhaps had any right to, had any right to be but there was there were so many holes in the story and so many things that I wanted to learn about this woman Linda Taylor who was known as, as the welfare queen um, and a, about who she really was beyond this this legend about her I felt personally like I had only scratched the surface but the thing that I really wanted to get at in the book was the larger framework of her story, the world 
in which she operated, but also the world in w- that that made her into this this figure, this person who became so important in our politics, in our policymaking. Why this woman and this place at this time? How did those things converge and turn her into this kind of icon, but also a, a person who uh, herself was her her personal history was erased. And I felt like having the space to explore that in a book was something that I wanted to do and that I felt would be rewarding to readers. So for you, it was a mix of frustration at the stuff that you hadn't gotten yet and a desire to like tell a bigger story than the piece itself was able to tell. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. Um, James, for you, what was it? Was there also some inciting incident that made you think, oh, this is a big enough story that this is a book? I think for me, it was a little bit different. In some senses, easier to get to the idea that it was a book because I knew from the beginning that I was trying to write the story of what happened in the last 50 years as the America embarked on this project that we now call mass incarceration. And I wanted to tell that story through the lens of African-American officials, black decision makers, legislators, judges, prosecutors in D.C. and around the country. So just the scope up front suggested that it might be worthy of a book-length treatment. I think the biggest obstacle for me to getting to the idea of it being a book is a little is that I'm different from the others in that I'm a law professor, not a writer or a reporter. And law professors don't study form very much in our writing, which is why a lot of you know law review articles are are not that accessible. We we're subject matter specialists, but we don't think that much about how to create a form that would be accessible to a broader audience. So for me, the actually the biggest challenge wasn't even so much thinking through the content, the substance, but thinking through, well, how do I make this inform um, a book that somebody might want to read? David and Eliza, you both, if I'm correct, Killers of the Flower Moon and Amity and Prosperity both had their roots in stories that you wrote as well, right? Yeah. For me, no. Actually, Killers of the Flower Moon began as a book and ended as a book. I had I did not do that okay. one as a magazine piece. Interestingly enough, I've had two experiences. And my first book, Lost City of Z, did begin as an article, uh, much like Josh. Um, and it was a case where I finished the piece about this British explorer who had disappeared in the Amazon. And I felt that I hadn't finished, that there were so many places to go. Um, and with Killers of the Flower Moon, it was a little bit more like James was talking about. The, the canvas was so sprawling about this racial injustice. It covered so many years, had so many individuals that the really, it was almost, they, they couldn't even figure out how to excerpt the book because it was just too, too many people, too, too, too open a narrative um, and, and spanning too many years. But um, for me, you know, the difference between, uh, generally speaking, an article or a book is does it have enough dimensions, places to go, avenues to explore? Also, does the subject matter have enough resonance that it justifies, hopefully for the reader, staying with something larger? I might do a short story that's like a lark, like the search for the giant squid that I don't think should be a book, something like the systematic murder of the Osage uh, in the early 20th century for their oil money for the 20th century felt like something that had lots of dimensions that had the birth of the FBI. And I guess the other 
question always for me, too, with a book is, is it something I want to spend years with? And that's a really important question, too, because I have had subject matters that I thought could be books, but I would have no desire to spend three to five years researching it. Um, and that's another important element that goes into the into the equation. Eliza, when you made the decision to write your book, you definitely were committing to a lot of extremely in-depth research and reporting on the ground. Was that a consideration for you as well, whether this was a story you wanted to live with that long? Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, I really hoped that by writing an article, I would do right by the subject and be able to put it down. And that did not happen, you know. (laughs) Um, So when I wrote the article, you know, there was a sick family, animals were dying, uh, and they were just at the beginning of what happened to be a multi-year lawsuit and investigation uh, with both state and federal authorities into what had gone wrong at this oil and gas site. But yeah, I mean, when I wrote that article, we knew very little. You know, the family knew that there was benzene and toluene in their bodies. They knew they'd lost pets. They knew that a 14-year-old had arsenic poisoning. But that's about all they knew. That had a pretty steep learning curve to how do you put down on a page what's known and what's not known and what can't be known. Because with a lot of environmental-related illness, you know, the causal link between the chemical or what goes wrong in a site and the sick kids or the dead animals, that link is never going to be substantial enough to satisfy a reader. So it was tricky ground from the beginning. And then, yeah, it was seven years. It was seven years of following this family um, and following their frustrating, maddening uh, walk through the court system, through regulation. It, it was That's what it entailed. Something really sparked for me there, one of the biggest challenges for me throughout the whole process, Eliza, Mm -hmm. was sorting things into categories of things that I, not to be too Rumsfeldian here, but the like kind of known unknowns and unknown unknowns, just the category of things that I don't know now, but I could be reasonably expected to know or figure out if I just kind of bash on it for long enough. And the things that it's probably not a good idea for me to be spending my time trying to sort out and, and sort through, even if they're big and fundamental mysteries that would speak to something big in the, uni- in, in the world in which I was able to figure them out. So how do you think through that problem, Eliza? And I'm curious for what other people think, too. Well, for me, I mean, one of the greatest injustices involved with many corporations, and oil and gas is just an example of it, but they control all information about the substances they're using, about when they're using them, and regulators are really just subject to their whims of releasing them, right? So any kind of definitive information, for instance, for many, many years, the one of the main questions is where did these chemicals go underground? Did they end up in people's drinking water? It took four or five years of this lawsuit for, you know, us kind of puzzling this out to figure out that, in fact, the company knew because the company had used tracers. So the company knew had chemical and radioactive tracers in the water that would have allowed them to map exactly where those chemicals went. So that 
disparity between and that really reveals the sort of greater corporate power of what what people do already know and what they're not going to tell you uh, is is really stunning. It's something I learned a great deal about. And I would have I would have just been absolutely sunk if I didn't have um, the legal records that from the two lawyers who made all these documents public. John and Kendra Smith are their names. Now, they're not environmental attorneys or even plaintiff attorneys. Kendra, the, the wife and this husband and wife team, is a corporate defense attorney who works for railroads mostly, defending them from asbestos cases. And she was so disgusted with what she saw in this case that she decided to take on this plaintiff case. So she had the training, super expensive training of like in, being an industrial hygienist, being able to puzzle out what these chemicals actually meant, what test results meant, what testing methods meant. And so with her help, I was able to understand what really needed to be a established in order for the book to make any sense at all. David and James, as you were embarking on these projects, how did you kind of sort the questions that needed to be answered out? Did you use similar categories to Josh's of uh, these are the things that I think I can figure out and these are the things that I'll probably never find out? Or are you more optimistic than a pessimist like Josh? <laughs> well, first of all, I just want to say I'm so glad that lawyers are heroes in Eliza's story. That's <laughs> that's that's kind of exciting, <laughs> exciting and rare. Uh, there are probably there are probably plenty of villains as well. I would imagine. For me, I think it was about figuring out which topics I wasn't gonna talk about again. Not because I couldn't maybe figure them out, because again, I'm writing about a, a topic that I'm I've already been studying for most of my career, but because they didn't fit into the narrative in some way. You know, I talk to academics all the time who say I want to write a book that reaches a wider audience, what advice do you have? And one of the things that I'm always telling people is that you've got to leave a whole bunch of stuff out. Um, and for academics, that's really counterintuitive because typically when academics write books, the biggest thing that can get you criticized by fellow academics is not talking about something that might you know, be tangentially relevant. But of course, if you want people to read your book, you have to not talk about a lot of tangents or else the book just becomes a series of tangents. So for me, it was really cutting, cutting, cutting. It was, yeah, this is interesting, this is important, but it's got to go in a separate article or a separate book or it will never get written. It's going to weigh down my story if I try to include it. That's funny. I have, I basically have a folder, which is where all the digressions go, <laughs> which are usually, you know, 3,000 words of history that I have mm. spent weeks researching some point of context. And then my wife reads it and says, that's really good. You got to cut it. Mm. <laughs> and, and I end up distilling it down to a paragraph so that the narrative keeps moving. And the paragraph, I hope, is really good because it's the most informed paragraph you'd ever have. But, but I do think that is essential to keep people and keep it moving and, and, and make sure you give the reader enough to know things in the context but not go too far off. I would say with Killers of the Flower Moon, I encountered something that was a real challenge beyond the kind of normal narrative structure challenge of what do you put in a book and what don't you put in a book, which had to do with, um, again, these were crimes that took place uh, in the early 20th century when the Osage were the wealthiest people per capita in the world because of oil under their land, and then they began to be serially murdered. And as I began to research the case, I had originally thought of it 
very much as kind of a traditional crime narrative of a kind of singular evil figure who had committed these crimes. And that was the FBI's theory of the case. And over time, I began to gather evidence from the Osage and through archives that showed there were really many, many more murders, scores more murders, unresolved, many of them improperly investigated or covered up. And I tried to investigate many of them. I thought it was so important to try to find answers. But in so many of the cases, um, you know, all the witnesses are deceased now, um, the victims are deceased, uh, the suspects are deceased. And so how do you handle that? And in some of the cases, I was able to gather enough circumstantial evidence that indicated who was responsible. And in other cases, I couldn't. And so one of the challenges for me was to not obscure that doubt, which I think authors sometimes mm-hmm. want to do because they want to be all-knowing and, and give satisfaction on all fronts to the reader. And yet I thought it was so important to reveal that doubt and kind of incorporate that doubt. But it was a real struggle at first because in many ways that doubt was essential to the theme of the book, which was this systematic cover-up in which these crimes still haunt families, uh, you know, less than a century later are still haunting families who don't yet know who is the precise perpetrator of a murder in their family. I think that's so important what David's saying. And and hard one is to let readers know what you don't know and what you can't know and to have faith in them that you're not going to be able to answer any question. And that ends up weirdly, I mean, I know as sort of growing as a journalist and writer, you know, I would be afraid to do that at an earlier point. Well, how can I admit that? That's going to call my authority into question. And the truth is just the opposite. I mean, I think even in this era of fake news, you know, and all these questions about authority of fact, you know, the role that integrity plays and in personal honesty, whether that's with sources, editors, or with a reader, I think that really goes a long way, that we're in conversation here, we're going on this journey together, and that doesn't mean I'm sitting in the authority seat and I have all the answers. I think people really underestimate the power that a writer admitting they can't know something has for a reader and the reader's trust in their honesty. So in the Slate piece um, that I did that that became the book, I had a, a section towards the end about Taylor and sociopathy. She behaved in many ways um, that seemed irrational. She treated people extremely callously. She used people. She abused her own family. There were a lot of of markers of this specific type of mental illness. And then as I was writing the book, and I actually learned more, I got some psych uh, evaluations that had been done on her when she got into the federal mental health system. The choice that I made was, despite actually knowing more, I decided to say less about what I thought was going on in her brain just because it felt more honest to me to admit that I didn't know. And I can present what these various other people thought. But as David and Eliza were saying, I think, I hope that you can earn the trust of readers that when you do say something authoritatively, they'll trust you if the flip side is when you admit gaps in your knowledge. I did a story once about uh, the world's 
greatest Sherlock Holmes scholar was found garroted in mysterious circumstances, <laughs> and uh, all these kind of Sherlockians and Conan Doyleans had taken up the case and investigated it. You know, by the end, I had a f- very strong circumstantial case of what happened, and I remember speaking to the sister of the Sherlock Holmes scholar, and I remember her saying, you know, we have to learn to live with doubts, and I think that's the difference between Sherlock Holmes fairy tales and real investigative reporting. Thanks for listening, and thanks to our members whose support helps make our journalism possible.